Hi, welcome to Timely Issues, the podcast. I'm both humbled and um, overwhelmed by the response to these uh, to these webinars, um, and it's a testament to uh, your endurance, and it's also a testament to the fact that the um, the technology has shifted now to where we are sharing information virtually. Um, and we're sharing it today about long-term care in, um, in a way that uh, wouldn't, all of you wouldn't have showed up uh, just a few months ago. We're three months into this event, uh, roughly, and the road ahead for long-term care um, in the United States, in the UK, in Europe, and elsewhere, is still taking shape. And that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about the current situation. I'll talk about uh, things in both economic and operational and marketing terms. Uh, we'll talk about the means of production, supply and demand. And by the means of production, I mean staff. Uh, they are, strictly speaking, uh, how uh, long-term care gets things done. We'll talk about the likely recovery models for the sector, for the markets for long-term care. Talk about why this time really is different. And we'll talk also about effective responses. So that's a lot of material to cover. And I've realized when I was putting this updated program together that I delved more deeply into the staffing uh, situation uh, for this event than I did for the prior event. <clears throat> and made a determination that I'll do yet another event where we talk about the demand side of the markets and how uh, that is likely to change and be changed and continue to change. So first I wanna define a crisis, uh, any unexpected event with adverse effects uh, on your organization, customers, consumers, et cetera, on your brand. And the usual sorts of crises that my firm and other strategic marketing communications firms have dealt with over the years in the sector are deaths and injuries, which do occur, untoward deaths, uh, injuries to uh, residents and staff uh, on premises or in the line of duty, uh, violence in or around the property that these things happen. And we're often asked to help our clients deal with these events from a media perspective, fires, floods, and other events. We were busy during hurricanes in 2016 and 17. Uh, and closures. Closures are untoward events in a community um, and how they are handled from a marketing communications point of view is important for the long-term uh, perception of the uh, provider it, among its employees as well as the brand. So what's different in this cri this particular crisis is the media frenzy that's that's been created. Um, there's al it's also different because it is personal relevance in this particular crisis. Personal relevance for a very broad array of the markets that with which we communicate because many of us have a relative or a dear friend uh, located in uh, a nursing center, a care home, uh, an assisted living residence, some type of 
congregate care setting. Another reason this is different this time is that the entire sector is under siege. The labels that have been used, care homes, nursing homes, uh, nursing centers, rehab centers, these are being used in media in a extremely uh, much more frequent way than ever before and in a negative way. Um, the other reason this event, these this time is different is because of the latent guilt in many societies around the relocation of uh, or by consumers, elderly individuals, to care homes, to nursing centers. Um, it's a, in many cases, unspoken, uh, unspoken rule that we should be taking care of our parents or grandparents ourselves. And when we don't do that, as we probably cannot but do not, uh, there's latent guilt associated with that. And the recent media frenzy is stirring that up and creating issues. Um, there's no certain end to this crisis. We don't know when the uh, situation, when the coast will be clear, so to speak. Uh, and for caregivers, the issue is who wants to work in an environment um, like this? Uh, who wants to work in an environment where, for all we know, the caregiver, I myself, might be the vector of the disease? Who wants to work in an environment where uh, I don't have access to testing, where I don't have access to personal protective equipment? So before we go too much further, I'd like to insert a poll question, and we're making an experiment here. Um, uh, can we? find out where the audience is from, US, UK, or EU or other, and uh, what your role is. The poll must be closed to enable screen sharing. Poll must be closed. So do I need to do anything here, Romilly? Yes. What do I need to do? I need to close. Mm -hmm. Am I doing it right? I hope so. Just continue. <laughs> Just collecting the poll. Okay. So while you all decide where you're from and what your what your roles are, I will carry on here. And when you have um, people can see your screen. Okay, that's good. So um, What's different about this crisis? I think the dominant factor, the dominant element that's so different about this crisis is fear. Uh, fear is a uh, human and social experience. It is often described as an emotion. Uh, it's researched, it's been researched a little bit and surprisingly um, uh, in this context, very little. And yet, few things are more important right now. Because as we see here, Rachel Maddow and this other clip from The Guardian, uh, I think that's from The Guardian, uh, media is using fear. They're using fear to sell their subscriptions to their outlets and newspapers and to garner eyeballs and traction. Uh, 
Consumers are frightened. Consumers are frightened overall about what do I do? What do I don't do? What's safe? What's not safe? Um, how do I behave? And this heightened anxiety, this heightened uncertainty creates fear. That's one of the things that we've been learning through the good peer-reviewed research is that in a context of heightened anxiety, uh, fear is uh, heightened as well. Managers are fearful. Um, we'll find out from the poll how many of you are in management positions, but operational managers, owners, operators are afraid because their business is under threat. Um, so, and in many cases, that fear is really quite legitimate. Staff are afraid. They're afraid for themselves. They're afraid for their jobs. They're afraid for the people whom they're caring for. Um, we know from good research in the sector that staff develop very deep bonds, very deep relationships, affective relationships with the people they serve. And so if you're uncertain about how you as the staff member might be negatively affecting the resident, that creates fear as well. So let's drill down into staff in the US and the UK. In the United States, there are about four and a half million long-term care workers. Um, and this is how they break down. Um, they are uh, very uh, predominantly, they work in skilled nursing centers, some work in assisted living and home health care as well. Um, they are in the majority women. They are uh, almost 25% of them are African-American. Um, that's the case in both the US and the UK as well. And as we'll see in a minute, where they fall on the socioeconomic spectrum leaves them particularly vulnerable in this particular um, crisis. Uh, in the UK, there's about 1.2 million, uh, about uh, a little less than half a million work in care and nursing homes, and about uh, 600,000 uh, in domiciliary care, and 150,000 providing day and social care. Now, this is a breakdown in the United States and the United Kingdom of the size or proportion of the individuals in these age in these uh, income cohorts and who's going to lose their jobs and as we see it is the lower income groups who will share the predominant burden of job loss as a result of coronavirus i want to drive this point home these individuals who in a in an econometric point of view are our means of production they are the ones who are actually doing the work. They are most at risk for losing their jobs. Their friends and family members are losing their jobs, and they are at risk as well. This heightens the sense of fear and anxiety that our staff experience while they are caring for the most vulnerable in our population. In the U.S., uh, we can see these numbers, which is, reflects churn in long-term care in the U.S., and uh, I've written about this extensively. It's extraordinarily expensive. It is indeed a strategic vulnerability that in the U.S., 
there is such a heavy level of turnover in the frontline caregiving uh, categories. And we see these data here. Similarly, in the UK, uh, the levers, I, we don't have the entrance data, but the levers, the lever rate in adult social care is extremely high. We can see uh, that in this uh, source, which is from the Health Foundation, they anticipated in 2019 that 36.5%, 40% of the frontline caregivers would be leaving their jobs. That creates an extraordinary situation for operators. So here's the situation assessment for the staff in long-term care. Um, the recruitment issues are challenging. It's a struggle. Retaining individuals once we've recruited them is also a struggle. Uh, when unemployment surges, as it is in uh, most places around the world, uh, the question becomes, will long-term care be seen as a good alternative? One can say, well, if the uh, local service uh, outlets, the local hospitality, for example, hotels, if the hotel the sector loses staff, there's high unemployment. Well, that bodes well for long-term care. Well, does it? Uh, I would raise that as a question, uh, whether long-term care will be seen as a good alternative. Uh, as the economies open back up, it raises the question, who wants to work for you and how do we communicate? We're going to talk in the last section about how what we say and how we word our messages to our audiences is so critical at this time. With regards to the supply, our physical property, plant, and equipment, uh, not PPE like personal protective equipment, but in an accountancy or econometric sense, property, plant, and equipment, our supply, our inventory, our capacity uh, has been struggling. There's been struggles with occupancy, and that's certainly occurring now. The most recent data about occupancy shows that the uh, level of beds occupied in both the US and the UK and in other locations as well is declining. Uh, we're struggling with recruitment and retention as we've already talked about. And importantly, the economic model is, is a struggle. Uh, in only a few places in developed economies uh, are is there a sound economic uh, model to uh, pay for care in congregate settings. Um, the inventory is old and in many cases threadbare and unattractive. There is by any stretch an onerous regulatory burden uh, in many locations for congregate care. And there's uh, unfortunately a, a deeply negative cultural bias toward congregate Elderly, uh, elderly qualified care. Um, for years, my firm did a very uh, large scale survey for uh, what was then Lifeline, it's now Phillips. And we did tens of thousands of surveys of referral sources in the United States and the UK and found that referral sources themselves consider relocation to congregate care an extraordinarily negative event. So in assisted living, that's market rate 
uh, more voluntary and less need-driven relocation. Occupancy is, is not as bad as it is in nursing centers and care homes. Uh, it's balanced or struggling based on uh, increased supply. Recruitment and retention is less of an issue. The economic model is better because there's better margins and there's an opportunity to um, create uh, market rate charges. It's a relatively new inventory, so it's the, the buildings and the properties are more attractive. It's a minimal regulatory burden, and there's only a slightly negative cultural bias, and we'll see why that is in a moment. For independent, age-qualified, independent living, um, age-qualified uh, congregate care centers, occupancy uh, is in some locations quite good, and in other locations it's been struggling. Recruitment and retention is less of a burden because there's fewer carers, fewer caregivers needed to attend to the needs of the individuals who are resident there. The economic model is better, relatively new inventory, little or no regulatory burden, and only a slightly negative cultural bias. And much of that cultural bias has to do with how the property is labeled or what it's named. So we typically in the um, management side of the supply system in congregate care, we typically uh, structure the supply something like this, where nursing centers and care homes are in one bucket, assisted living residences are in another bucket, independent living, CCRC or care villages, and board and care. And this bright lines between and among these, sometimes driven by the regulations, sometimes driven by simply what the intention of the developer is. However, consumers see these all overlapping, and that's important as we look at how the sector might recover, how the sector will um, emerge as the economies emerge as well. Do we have results on the poll, and do I know how to access those, Romilly? Hi there, Irving. And so we've asked the first question, which was, what is your location? And um, we have the results of those, which is 85% of the attendees are from the U.S. today. Uh, we can ask the second question now, which is, what is your role? So everybody, there's a question going to come up now for you. Okay. Um, there it is. Nice. Okay. Thanks so for those much. of you who don't know, this is an experiment. We're trying to figure this out as we go here. <laughs> Thank you, everyone who's voting. And these polling questions were suggested by one of the participants in a prior webinar. So if you're on the, on the, uh, on the call this time, thank you very much. <laughs> so I'm not sure, um, I think I ought to press ahead here because I can't see the poll results. Click That's great. Okay. So. I would also like to ask people, and I think, I think Romilly has a polling question, which of these elements to the sector do you see as most challenging? Staffing, I speak with 
managers and leaders in long-term care uh, sectors uh, in the UK, EU, and US. I speak with folks all the time. And uh, these are the um, what keeps you up at night uh, items that are often discussed, staffing, supply, demand, and finances. So we'd like a poll to see which of these you think is most challenging. So shall I press ahead, Romilly? Yes, please. Okay. So let's look at recovery. Um, we've painted the picture of what the situation is. And so now uh, what I'd like to do is talk about recovery. And this is a model uh, that shows the economic models for recovery uh, based, in, based on the U.S. This is a macroeconomic view of potential recovery models based on the supply and demand side shocks that the pandemic represents. So what it looks like here is that the earliest time when we'll see a return, approximate return to normalcy will be in the fourth quarter of 2021. And then this model shows that the normalcy begins to return in the second quarter of 2022. Now that may seem like a long way away, um, given the scale of what has occurred, um, this despite the political positioning to the contrary, this might be a very reliable prediction uh, of this economic event. In many um, articles about the economic impact of the COVID-19 uh, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, in many of these articles, you'll hear about U-shape and V-shape recoveries. This model uh, shows a modified U-shape, and you can see the U in the curve, the depression associated with the uncertainty shock and the uh, first moment shocks. So we're going to look a little more closely at this because I want to create an analogy between how the economy will recover and how the sector will recover, as I believe there is a legitimate analogy there to be made. And this is from McKinsey. And it applies, I believe, to the economy at large and to the sector in particular. Uh, I want to point out here the center of this uh, six uh, potential of these six potential economic recovery models. I want to look specifically at A1. It shows a long, uh, long-term slow return to normal where we'll see partially effective inter interventions and effective response by the public health authorities to the, to the uh, virus, but with recurrence, which is already what we're seeing. We're seeing recurrence around the United States, around the UK, but not in the densely populated epicenters that we had seen initially. Another slightly more optimistic perspective, which may very well occur, is, is in A2, where we see a recovery, a U-shape with an irregular recovery, but a more rapid recovery. And we can only hope for that 
And I've modeled some of these recoveries, uh, which I will show you in a moment. And then the sort of the negative, uh, nobody wants to see this happen, uh, is what's referred to as an L-shaped recovery, where there's a permanent, where there's permanent damage to the economy and a permanent loss. I think unless there is some change in the approach to COVID-19 in nursing centers in particular and care home care homes in particular in the US and the UK recovery I fear that we may see permanent loss of market demand in those categories based on um, some inappropriate responses by the regulators uh, and the public so let's look at some of these factors in the post covid-19 uh, timeframe. The first of these is acceptance, and the flip side of that, the obverse, is penetration. So if I accept uh, congregate long-term care as a solution for my needs, um, I am part of uh, a segment of the population. Not everyone for whom congregate care is a suitable alternative, not everyone accepts it as an alternative, as a solution. So that this degree of penetration and acceptance, which we routinely measure in market-based feasibility analysis or market analysis, this is a critical factor because as many as the age, income, asset, or other disability qualified individuals there may be in a geography, only a certain proportion of them will accept congregate care as a solution. Then there are the trade-offs between and among the needs or benefits and the risks, um, and that's what COVID-19 is doing. It's introducing a new level of risk, which we must uh, evaluate in the context of market analysis. And then the other bullet here is the trade-off between the needs that I have or the benefits I perceive and the status quo, uh, uh, determining the um, level of acceptance against staying in your own home or staying in a relative's home or staying in your current uh, domestic setting, that's always a difficult uh, barrier to overcome. And my concern is that going forward, that will remain a difficult barrier and become an even greater barrier to acceptance. Another piece here that's very worrisome is government or regulatory intervention. Uh, how will that play out? Will it be supportive or will it be punitive? We're seeing conflicting messages from the regulator in the United States, which is CMS. Uh, the person in charge there is sending out highly conflicted signals about whether she intends to be supportive of the sector or whether she intends to be punitive. Um, those two paths uh, cannot easily be reconciled and my sincere hope is that people in academia, people uh, in universities, people who are, have independent voices will argue strongly and compellingly for support uh, for the sector at this time. Uh, it's clear that what this COVID-19 has done is it's exposed, or as one commentator put it, it's blown the doors off of this building, which the infrastructure of which was crumbling and has been for quite some time. 
And then another variable here that needs to be considered, and this needs to be considered by the regulatory authorities um, and by government, is the liability issues and exposure associated with COVID. Do we need special riders on our insurance policies? Will we need to have uh, residents sign waivers? Uh, will they accept those waivers? How will this be resolved? The insurance market has been uh, silent so far, although I know that they are all, there's a lot of actuarial midnight oil being burned right now as we speak about that. So what I'd like to do is offer what I think is just an, a, an estimate, a preliminary estimate of the timeline and the depth of and the scope of the impact of COVID-19 on skilled nursing centers and care homes. I've estimated uh, using some rough national estimates, the level of penetration and acceptance for these solutions. And my concern is that the acceptance and penetration will indeed uh, be plunged into roughly half of its current level and that it will recover only very slowly. Uh, I believe that we will see the loss of further uh, supply. Uh, colleagues uh, doing research uh, in this uh, domain have shown that uh, in the United States, we're losing nursing homes. Nursing homes have been closing at a very rapid rate in response to um, demographics and payments, uh, and that the loss of those nursing centers is primarily in less densely populated areas. So in places, it seems like places where they're needed the most, um, they are going away the fastest. And I am concerned that the same pattern will manifest in the UK and in EU as well. In market rate assisted living, as you can see, the depth of the acceptance will be less, the trough will be lower, uh, and the recovery swifter, uh, but it still remains to be seen how negatively certain assisted living residences will be viewed by the consumers. A lot of this will be determined by the nature of the acceptance in the marketplace area before COVID. And in places where the acceptance rate was previously very high, we believe that the uh, the virus factor, the negative effect of COVID-19 will be attenuated by that high level of acceptance. In marketplace areas where acceptance was low, um, we anticipate that the depth of the losses in market acceptance will be higher. And for independent living, we see a, also see a loss, a significant loss of acceptance and penetration. Uh, but a swifter return, also depending uh, contingent on branding and the how badly the virus uh, was, how badly the virus impacted in that local marketplace area, and how much negative press uh, the skilled nursing care homes received in that local marketplace area. So I'd like to go through a couple of models that are possible in my estimation, for recovery in the sector. And the economic uh, depth, length, and shape 
in the marketplace area will certainly impact the effect on the sector. And I see basically two potential scenarios. Scenario one is that the sector will have a bona fide opportunity to rebuild and recharge. And that's going to rely on policy, that's going to rely on politics, that's going to rely on sane voices coming forward and saying, we simply cannot tolerate an irrational, completely inefficient from an economic point of view, from a human point of view, it's a completely inefficient system and it needs to be uh, rebuilt and recharged. The other potential scenario, unfortunately, is ravaged and relegated, uh, ravaged based on occupancy and the financial um, turnover that these operators may have and relegated to further second-class status, which is where, unfortunately, nursing homes and care homes are currently. Um, so those are the potential outcomes and, and the outcomes in terms of recovery for economies and the sector. And I believe that they will be very closely uh, related in most places. I'd like to talk about what we can do what we as operators, managers, there's some academics on the, on the call today. What can we do? What, what are some of the effective responses? This is built on extremely good, extremely sound uh, research on effective communications in a crisis and how um, media communications, how our communications can impact uh, either heightening or lowering um, the reactions to situations that uh, are presented. The first thing we can do is have a crisis communication plan. And you say to me, as, as I've been talking with people, I gave the first uh, crisis communications uh, webinar uh, four or five weeks ago, spoken to a number of you about this, and many, several people have said to me, well, what good is a crisis communications plan now? And I would say as I, to you, as I said to them, it's even more important now because a plan includes how we manage the media as well as how we manage the messages. And we have to take responsibility for the messages. And that means not waiting for media or special interest groups um, in, in the UK, we can't wait for skills for care, or we can't wait for advocacy groups to take up our cause for us. We need to take responsibility for that. And in the United States, uh, Leading Age has stepped forward and done a pretty good job of advocating, but we operators and managers, we need to take responsibility at a local level to manage the impact of this crisis in our markets. The second thing is that we need to be scientific and numeric versus affective. What the good research shows is that our messages need to focus on numbers, we need to focus on the science, and not on the emotional side of, this, of, the, of the messages. Uh, there are certainly some positive stories. We talk about healthcare heroes, that's effective and a very positive story. Uh, I have clients that have uh, congregate care centers on islands, 
And those situations are quite favorable. That's a good story. But the principle here is that the communications should be scientifically based and it should be numerically based. Shaming, which is, I don't have to explain shaming. Shaming is being used uh, certainly in the Twitter sphere, in the digital communications by many people around um, the problems in uh, long-term care and care homes in the UK and nursing centers in the United States. It might work in the short term. There may be situations where the availability or access to testing, for example, we have a client who is only able to get access to testing for everybody in his staff and all the residents in the care center because they shamed the, pop, the politicians into making those resources available. But that's a not a long-term tactic that we can use. It's to be used in a very narrow array of services. The other principle is that we need to shift the narrative now. We need to start telling the stories that are scientific, numeric, that talk about the positive aspects, and there are some positive aspects. Uh, we need to tell those stories and show those images now. We need to begin to develop this capability and this trickle of communications into our local marketplace areas. The second thing that we absolutely need to do is we need to review our digital assets. We need to have crisis communications that accept and understand the principles. Uh, the perceived risk is having an impact on fear, and we can mitigate that. We can reduce the impact of perceived risk uh, by talking about our centers, our experience, what we were able to do successfully, numerically and scientifically, and that will reduce levels of fear. And the other is, we've never really done a good job of this in our, in our uh, businesses uh, on either side of the pond, and that's segmentation. There are certain segments of our populations, of our target populations, who, who will be more amenable to a congregate care solution than others. And we need to be smarter and more efficient about reaching out to those segments. Um, for nursing centers and care, home, uh, care homes in the UK, consumers and staff, uh, these segmentations can be undertaken very specifically. And with regards to recruitment and retention, why do people keep working for us? There are people in our centers who have been extraordinarily loyal, who are deeply committed Let's better understand who they are and why they're motivated to undertake these extraordinary measures. Uh, let's understand that better and then use that information to better target, recruit, and retain uh, individuals. The other principle, the last principle in this set of here's what we can do today, uh, we can protect, defend, and fortify our current market share. We can protect, defend, and fortify our current staff, which I'm sure many of you are doing. The principle here is service error recovery. We've had lots of errors 
now we need to implement effective service error recovery. And for those of you who have participated in other participate in other trainings that I've presented, this is worthy of uh, its own topic. It's critical. There is a science behind how to recover from a, an error that one commits in a service environment. And we need to get smarter about that in long-term care. Finally, we need to innovate for greater efficiency. If the markets are going to shrink and the available uh, uh, means of production are going to be more difficult to find, we need to get more efficient. So I believe efficiency, real efficiency, will become uh, an extraordinarily important hallmark of successful providers going forward. And then finally, we need to differentiate, indeed differentiate around that higher level of efficiency and innovative, uh, innovative ways to care for the people trusted to us. So in conclusion, we've looked at the current situation. We've looked at uh, likely recovery models for both the economy and how that will be analogized to the sectors. And we've looked at what managers can do today to help manage and accelerate effective response to COVID-19. My hope is that uh, these things have communi been communicated effectively. If you enjoy these podcasts, please subscribe and be sure to tell your friends and colleagues. Thanks for listening.